Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, June 14th. June 4th, I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as protests continue in cities across the nation, we examine the role of Homeland Security in preserving the safety of America's cities and citizens. Then, those seeking reform and an end to systemic racism are marching and shouting to be heard. We look closer at the role of civil unrest as an agent of change. Plus, in today's book club, a Mississippian who is one of the most read sports writers in the country tells us about his book, The Cost of These Dreams. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Earlier this week, President Donald Trump addressed the nation from the Rose Garden, speaking on the weekend of protests that erupted throughout the country. Nearby, just outside the gates of the White House in Lafayette Park, armed police began forcibly clearing the streets of unsuspecting protesters who had been gathered for hours. That move, which was ultimately done to clear a way for the president to have a photo op at St. John's Episcopal Church, is now under scrutiny from the House's committees, our Committee on Homeland Security. Mississippi Representative Benny Thompson, who chairs the committee, is requesting a briefing from the Secret Service regarding the abrupt decision to clear the park. He discusses the request and the role of Homeland Security with our Michael Guidry. Well, I want to make sure that the Secret Service is not being drawn into a political uh, photo op for the president. Uh, A lot of us uh, saw uh, the president leave the White House. Uh, We saw uh, some tear gas pepper spray being used. Uh, We heard rubber bullets uh, uh, going off. And we saw members of the press being uh, mistreated. Uh, And all of this, uh, the protesters were peaceful. And I don't want uh, our Secret Service to become pawns of anyone. They are professional law enforcement people. Uh, They do a good job. They have a, a serious mission. 
and I don't want that mission to be minimized uh, for anyone. Uh, in a sort of expose of the events of that day, the New York Times uh, is reporting that ultimately Attorney General Barr uh, gave the instructions to clear the park before the president made way. Does, does Attorney General Barr have the authority to do that? Well, I think uh, a lot of us uh, uh, think uh, he does not. Uh, he is uh, the chief lawyer uh, for the United States. He's not the chief law enforcement uh, security person. He he is to provide legal direction uh, for this country. So I think what we are seeing is a blurring of the lines of authority uh, within the executive branch. As you've noted, and as people have seen on television uh, and read about in, in multiple media outlets, there is civil unrest throughout the country. Uh, most of it is peaceful. Uh, some of it does involve reported arson, vandalism, and looting. What is the role of Homeland Security as protests are expected to continue? Well, we have a number of law enforcement-related agencies uh, within the department, uh, Secret Service, Federal Protective Service, <clears throat> a number uh, of other agencies. We are part of those agencies that help keep America safe. Uh, that means that even if you are protesting, if you're doing it in a peaceful manner uh, and some of our assets are being used, we're there to protect you. Uh, we should not come out and misuse any American citizen uh, just because you don't like what they might be protesting. But uh, Homeland uh, is to keep us safe, and we've done a good job, and I'm really concerned that the president is blurring the lines of authority as it relates to keeping America safe and those Homeland Security men and women uh, from doing their job. Uh, so uh, we are saying to the president, uh, we need strong leadership. We don't need a president who determines uh, on Twitter what the next public policy position should be. Talk to us. You mentioned the president and his use of Twitter and policy. Uh, the president has stated via Twitter that he wants to classify Antifa, uh, whom he claims is responsible for the violence surrounding the protests, as a terrorist organization. Uh, there are certainly statutes and legal precedent that make such a blanket ca classification uh, problematic. Are the president's demands rooted in Homeland Security policy, or, or is this simply rhetoric? Well, it's absolutely rhetoric. Uh, if you talk to the intelligence agency, his notion that Antifa is somehow behind some of these disturbances, there's no proof whatsoever uh, that they are behind it. Uh, our latest conversation uh, with some of those agencies uh, yesterday said that they cannot find any connection between Antifa and the disturbances going on in the majority of, of these uh, communities. So again, he's fanning the flames of hysteria when we need somebody who's cool, calm, and collected at the top to give people the confidence uh, that they know what they're doing and that everything will be all right. But for whatever reason, 
Uh, he thrives on chaos and not telling the truth. And that's not real leadership. Uh, shifting to the impetus for what we're seeing nationwide, uh, the president, as well as your congressional colleagues, all, all of whom are Republicans, have expressed a range of responses to the death of George Floyd and have universally condemned the actions of the white police officer who has since been charged for murder. Uh, many of them have also stated that the violence associated with the protest is unacceptable. What we're not necessarily hearing from them are statements about the system, the, the systemic problems inherent in policing that protesters largely state are at the heart of their message. Is it practical for policymakers to view the death of George Floyd in a vacuum like this? Oh, there's no question. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to fix the long-standing systemic problems that exist in this country. Uh, some of them are tied to law enforcement, but the broader issue has to do with our criminal justice system. Uh, it has to do with so many people being left out of being able to participate in the American dream. The top uh, people in this country should not be the sole beneficiaries of this greatness of this country. Uh, the greatness of this country can only manifest itself when all of us have an opportunity to participate. So what you are seeing manifesting itself now is that festering and dissatisfaction uh, with long-standing public policies that don't allow for everyone in this country to be the best that they can be. And so now is a pivotal moment. Uh, in this country, uh, I'm convinced that if you really want to fix the problem, uh, let's look at it it's in, in its entirety and not just on this particular incident. And so many of us over the next several weeks will be offering a number of legislative fixes that we think that can get us to the next level. Congressman Benny Thompson, the gentleman from Bolton representing Mississippi's 2nd District. As always, thank you so much, sir. All right. Thank you for having me. As protests are expected to continue in the nation's capital this weekend, Governor Tate Reeves says he is cooperating with federal partners by sending members of the Mississippi National Guard to Washington, D.C. At the request of our uh, federal partners, uh, we, along with about eight or nine other states, uh, have sent a Mississippi National Guardsmen uh, to the District of Columbia, and we have also sent uh, assets to a couple of other states, or maybe one other state, um, to help ensure uh, that the protesters um, are, A, protected, those who are protesting peacefully, uh, but then also provide support as needed uh, in any way uh, to make sure that those who are not peacefully protesting, uh, those who are going across that line and rioting uh, are um, dealt with as well. Coming up, those seeking reform and an end to systemic racism are marching and shouting to be heard. We look closer at the role of civil unrest as an agent of change. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. 
We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The nation is on the eve of its second weekend of widespread protests following the death of George Floyd. Protesters are marching and shouting in the streets of American cities, demanding their cause for reform be heard. C.J. Lawrence is an attorney and CEO of Black with No Chaser, a media outlet focusing on social advocacy. He's also the chairperson of Jackson Mayor Shokwai Antar Lumumba's Officer ID Task Force, assigned to address police brutality. He tells our Desiree Fraser, protests are acts of unrest meant to amplify the need for change. If you look now at what's taking place and you see some people protesting in what is framed as peaceful, um, my my the act of protest in and of itself is not a thing of of, of peace, in my opinion. If it is, if it if we are pro if if we have peace, then we aren't protesting. If we have justice, then we aren't protesting. And when we protest, what do we say? No justice, no peace. So um, what that means is that any protest uh, is a direct action of um, confrontation against issues that um, that you feel um, afflicted by as a people. And um, when you see people responding in ways that they do, we must understand that there are roles that many people play in how a protest and how an uprising should take place. Uh, you have policymakers that should be working uh, in conjunction with, you know, your disruptors who are on the ground uh, in conjunction with your, um, your strategists and your thinkers and your, those who visualize things. But uh, there is no perfect way to fight for your life. And that's what we're doing right now. So you agree with the protests that are taking place? I absolutely do. Um, I, what I would say is that um, what I would say is that Dr. King stated that a, a riot is the uh, language of the unheard, uh, and I would um, I would agree that in many ways what is taking place right now is one form of that outcry. There are many things that have to happen in order to get people to respond. It would not be untrue to state that um, Derek Chauvin was not arrested. And um, that's the officer who had his knee on um, George Floyd's neck. Yes. Derek Chauvin, the officer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck, was not arrested until Precinct 3 burnt to the ground. Uh, he was not brought into police custody until Precinct 3 burnt to the ground. Now, uh, again, that's not to say that that's the only form of protest that's taking place because people are descending upon there. People are, you had Jay-Z reach out to the governor to use his platform. Uh, you have activists like Tamika Mallory and the NAACP of Minnesota, as well as the national um, NAACP present there as well. So you have all of these bodies working in conjunction with each other. Now, the media is going to, to show what's going on in the streets because that's sensational, but uh, it's not the only thing that's happening to move the needle and all of it, honestly, is necessary to um, move the needle. Uh, we are in a country where we have been bullied 
for years. Um, black people have been in abusive have been in an abusive relationship with America since since we landed on its soil. And so um, I think it would be a fallacy to to think that it's incorrect to to fight, literally fight fire with fire. Your thought on seeing mixed race rallying together, mixed race folks rallying together and officers taking a knee and also marching. I think it's I think it's powerful. I'm of the mindset that none of us are free until all of us are free. And so I think that uh, it's a good thing to uh, have people who are acting and responding as allies, people who are frustrated. I think that we are have arrived in the, at, a, at a place in this country where a lot of people are just sick of America's BS. Now, some um, might say, yes, we are concerned about white officers or any officer abusing uh, mm-hmm. a black person. We've mm-hmm. got black on black crime in the streets every day. And we don't see this kind of response to it. What would I say to that? Mm -hmm. I would say that black on black crime is not a thing that is a social construct. And it's a social construct that is as, as similar as white on white crime is. Uh, But white on white crime is not a thing that is referred to or referenced. Um, And that if we want to see white on white crime, they got a whole channel dedicated to it. It's called investigation discovery. Uh, you can watch white on crime, white on white crime every single day for 24 hours a day if you truly want to. Uh, but that's not something that is referred to. Um, and so uh, what what I would say is that the responses that you see uh, with black people in America as it relates to extra extrajudicial killings of black people, brown people and really all people, because we 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 get upset when when it. When it happens to uh, white people, too. But uh, the response that you see to that is directly related to both the assassination of the body of human beings, the subsequent assassination of the character of human beings and the subsequent justification of those assassinations. C.J. Lawrence is an attorney and the CEO of Black With No Chaser. The large protest expected this weekend come as the state continues its efforts to combat transmission of the coronavirus. Officials have urged that those participating do so safely by wearing masks and gloves or avoiding large crowds if, as they are exhibiting sim, if they are exhibiting sim, symptoms. Mississippi has over 16,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19. Nearly 800 Mississippians have died from the disease, which have hit long-term care facilities especially hard. This week, a judge ordered the Department of Health to release the names of nursing homes with suspected outbreaks of coronavirus. Coming up in today's book club, a Mississippian who is one of the most read sports writers in the country who tells us about his book, The Cost of These Dreams. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. 
This week's book club author is one of the most successful sports writers in the country. As a senior writer for ESPN, Wright Thompson has the distinction of having his articles read by more people in the history of ESPN magazine. Born and raised in the Mississippi Delta, Thompson lives in Oxford now. We revisit a conversation from last spring upon the release of his book, The Cost of These Dreams, Sports Stories and Other Serious Business. Wright tells us about narrowing down thousands of sports profiles to the final 14 in the book. I picked 30 and turned it over to Scott Moyers, the editor at Penguin Random House, and said, please help me. And so I liked the fact that at some point I was turning this over to someone who might see things that I wouldn't see. In the end, I was too close to the pieces, which made me both love them all and also hate them all, sort of like children. You include Mississippi, the 1962 integration at Ole Miss, with an emphasis on the football team because the football team played a pretty big role. Can you tell us a little about that? That was the only year Ole Miss had ever been undefeated. Ole Miss had had really great football teams before and some good ones after, but that was the year they were undefeated. It's interesting to me growing up, I always thought that Archie Manning and those Ole Miss teams were the height of Ole Miss football. But really, even in 1967, 68, 69, 70, those successful Ole Miss teams were already colored by nostalgia because they were this last gasp and this muted second attempt for an already faded glory. I found that the success of the football team and the de-evolution of the campus at the same time It was the fault line between two eras, between two cultures. You had one civilization at Apogee and another one just beginning. And I found that really, really interesting. An old Mississippi was dying and a new Mississippi was being born. And these things were happening side by side on a daily basis, sometimes at the very same moments, and sometimes so wound together as to be the same thing. What's your favorite sport? College football, probably. Is that your favorite sport to write about? You know, I I like to watch it. I like Ole Miss games probably more than I like football itself. I like the experience. Uh, My favorite sport to write about is really determined by the athletes and the people in the place. I'm much more interested in – I'm interested in why people play games, and I'm also interested in why people love them because I think sports are often a really – simple appearing and yet very sophisticated instrument for passing along intergenerational codes and multi-generational codes and stories about family and place and who we are. I like to know why people cheer at these games. That's very interesting to me. What player have you written about the most? It's odd because I usually write about somebody once and then move on. I feel like I go so deep into people's lives there's an unspoken promise that I'm only going to do this to you once. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, I try not to, I don't want to be buddies with people after, and I don't go back to the well. And I only really keep in touch with one person I've ever written about because we just got to be really close, and that's Pat Riley, and that story is in this book. But most of the time I feel like implicit in the promise of them letting me into their lives to such a degree is that when our time here is done, I leave their lives. Do those people that you write about, do many of them contact you afterwards to say thanks or you got it totally wrong or why didn't you include this? Why did you include this? I usually hear from other people who talk to them and usually they are shocked at how intimate it was. I mean, Michael Jordan 
asked his people, how did he find all this stuff out? And they were like, uh, Michael, you told him. <laughs> uh, I mean, Urban Meyer found his portrayal dead accurate and very uncomfortable. I mean, I think a lot of people really want to be seen, but don't always understand what that looks like. I've never had one of these people, you know, I've never gotten sued or had people go on the offensive saying this isn't true, which feels good. You saved a very personal chapter for the last chapter, Holy Ground. That's about your dad? Yes, ma'am. He, uh, you know, he's uh, from Bentonia, Mississippi, which a lot of our listeners will know where that is. It's outside of Yazoo City, and he grew up outside of Bentonia. I mean, I think they thought the kids from Bentonia were city boys, you know, population 12 or whatever it was. And it's a story about his life and the actual arc is him wanting to go to Augusta National and dying before he made it. I think the larger arc is a boy from Bentonia imagines a life and chases it down and gets some things and doesn't get other things. And the next generation is left to sort out that journey and to figure out like what is the responsibility of a son? Like how much, how many of the dreams of your father is it incumbent upon you to try to make come true? What levers do ghosts pull? How much gravitational pull do they have? And uh, I think it's a journey about generations making sense of each other. Right. Thompson is the most read writer in the history of ESPN and the author of The Cost of These Dreams, Sports Stories, and Other Serious Business. Right. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.